SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, the 8th of November, we have a yarn with a Yaran Cousins Bando, Kirwe Warung, and Gotish Mara World Dreaming Custodian, talking to us ahead of her participation in events taking place in several cities across the country aimed at encouraging communities to better protect Australia's marine ecosystem. Also on NITV Radio today, we have a conversation with uh, Tristan Pemberton, director of the movie Gravel Road, a movie that tells the story of indigenous rock and roll band The Desert Stars, also known as Black Adaka, described as the world's most remote indigenous rock band. The Desert Stars will arrive in Melbourne later this week as part of a tour to launch their movie nationally. Also on NITV Radio today, well, recently a major housing development was stopped on the outskirts of Adelaide after the discovery of what's believed to be one of the largest ancient burial grounds in South Australia. All these stories and more after the latest news coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri Waiwurrung people in Nam on the Kulin Nation. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside the Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Bulletin, the Australian government to invest in Indigenous-led research to end violence against First Nations women and children. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese arrives in Raratonga for the Pacific Islands Forum. And cybersecurity experts say Optus outage shows the fragility of Australia's communications network. The Australian government is set to invest in an Indigenous-led research into domestic and family violence as part of a national strategy to end violence against First Nations women and children. Social Services Minister Amanda Richworth has announced a $15 million in funding over five years as part of the next stage of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Action Plan. The funding will be used to create a data set that will provide a national picture of First Nations women and children, as well as culturally sensitive data collection and reporting practices. Ms. Richworth says an improved evidence-based framework will also allow the government to better track the progress of the initiative. The federal government has has defended its efforts to control inflation after the Reserve Bank's decision to raise the cash rate to its highest level since 2011. 
Shadow Finance Minister Jen Hume has said the RBA had no choice but to raise rates to 4.35% at their Melbourne Cup Day meeting because of what she described as a labour failure to tackle inflation directly. The Albanese government says it has focused on easing cost of living pressures for Australians, including a range of measures to improve childcare and parental leave access, as well as increasing energy support. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones has told Sky News Labor's fiscal policy has the backing of the Reserve Bank of Australia. The government's uh, strategy in all of this is to ensure uh, that our fiscal policy is disciplined, uh, that we're not adding to the inflationary fire, and we haven't been. The previous Reserve Bank Governor and the current Reserve Bank Governor have observed that uh, fiscal policy has made it easier for them to do their job. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese has arrived in Rarotonga for the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting this week. The Prime Minister will join leaders from 18 Pacific nations to agree steps to deliver the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific Continent as they look to show that signs of division in the Pacific region are in the past. Australia has put much stock in the 2022 agreement, which will cover climate change, security challenges and nuclear issues as part of a renewed diplomatic focus on its home region. The PIF has previously been hampered by threatened walkouts and no-shows, with Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari, a noticeable absentee in this year's meeting, following closer ties between the Pacific Island nation and China. Cybersecurity experts say a nationwide Optus outage highlights the fragility of Australia's communication network. Optus has said its engineers are investigating a network fault which has seen millions of Australian businesses and mobile phone users unable to make or receive calls and access mobile internet. Federal Communications Minister Michelle Rowlands has said the outage appeared to be a deep and significant network problem, while an Optus spokesman said the company was working to restore services as a priority. The CEO of the Cyber Security Cooperative Research Centre, Rachel Falk, says the outage, which also saw Melbourne train services interrupted, is unprecedented in scale. As we see the fragility of the telco network, it connects everyone to everything. It connects, uh, obviously, train services, uh, hospitals, internet, um, phone services, and it's from you know right from Cairns to Melbourne to Perth to across here to the east coast. Triple Zero are advising Optus customers to call the helpline from their mobiles as Australia continues to be affected by a nationwide outage of mobile phone and internet services. Communications Minister Michelle Rowland has said in a national conference on the outage, which was first reported at around 4 a.m. this morning, that Triple Zero is operating normally on Optus mobile devices but not on landlines. Optus CEO Kelly Bearos Marine has told ABC Sydney the company is still pursuing every possible avenue with the fundamental issue not yet resolved. The outage has continued to affect millions of Australian customers and essential services nationwide with services New South Wales, call centres and phone lines at hospitals in Sydney and Melbourne's north down. Ms Rowland says she has no information to confirm the outage was caused by a cyber attack but that it represents a deep systemic issue. It has uh, occurred uh, deep within the network. It has wide ramifications across mobile, fixed and broadband services for Optus customers. Uh, 
Secondly, we now understand, and this has been confirmed, that calls to triple zero, the emergency service, cannot be made from Optus landline services. The main organisation representing doctors has warned against cutting Medicare funding for telehealth appointments with, with the specialists, describing it as a cost-cutting exercise. A committee charged with reviewing Medicare benefits has recommended that it only cover initial face-to-face consultations with specialists. But the Australian Medical Association, in a submission to the review, said doctors had serious concerns about the proposal. The association's president, Steve Robson, says removing funding would make it harder for patients to access health care and some patients would have to travel hundreds of kilometres to see a specialist. The Palestine Red Crescent Society has accused Israeli forces of targeting a humanitarian convoy in Gaza City. The humanitarian organization says the convoy of five trucks was carrying life-saving medical supplies to health facilities such as Al-Quds Hospital when it came under fire, damaging two trucks and wounding a driver. So far, the Israeli military's relentless bombardment of the Gaza Strip has killed more than 10,000 people, around 40 of whom are children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Despite the toll on civilians, Israel's leadership has refused a ceasefire until all hostages held by Hamas militants are released. IDF chief spokesperson Daniel Hagari says there are no plans for a pause to violence in the region. Hamas terrorists are telling themselves that there will be a ceasefire. There is no ceasefire. We continue forward. We are focused on the attack in Gaza, and at the same time we are operating simultaneously in each of the sectors in the north. Meanwhile, members of the Australian Islamic community say political leaders need to do more to stem a tide of prejudice. The Islamophobia Register of Australia says there's been a tenfold increase in Islamophobic incidents reported in the last month. They say these range from verbal abuse directed at Muslims, Muslims to threats directed at mosques, Islamic schools and Islamic community organizations. The Islamophobia Register's executive director is Sharara Atai. Palestinians are being dehumanized. Uh, we've seen our leaders express you know, a lot of sympathy and solidarity to the Jewish community, for example, yet we have over 10,000 dead Palestinian civilians and the, you know, uh, the Palestinian community in Australia is mourning 4,000 dead children and yet our leaders have not shown similar sympathy or solidarity. Qantas will appear before the federal court today as the case into the airline's decision to sell thousands of already cancelled tickets takes off. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission sued the airline in August, claiming it had engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct after continuing to sell tickets for 10,000 cancelled flights between May and July 2022. Qantas has acknowledged it had let customers down but says airlines cannot guarantee specific flight times which could be delayed due to the nature of travel, weather and operational issues. Both parties will face a case management hearing before the federal court in Melbourne, which will listen to both sides' cases for the first time. 
and to sport in football, the Socceroos and Matildas look set to be rewarded with a first-ever 50-50 split in prize money from World Cup performances. Football Australia and the Players' Union are expected to announce a new four-year collective bargaining agreement today after the previous deal lapsed in October. As well as an increase in the share of prize money, Matilda's players look set to benefit from a change in their contractual agreement with the FA. Female players could be given standard call-up and match fees equal to those enjoyed by the Socceroos rather than receiving payment via tiered annual contracts. Now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny, 32, Perth, also sunny and 30 degrees, Adelaide, partly cloudy, 27, Melbourne, showers developing, 29, Hobart, similar conditions, 24, Albury-Wodonga, mostly sunny, 29, Canberra, showers and a possible storm, 25, Wollongong, partly cloudy, 25, Sydney, mostly sunny, 26, Newcastle, much the same, 27, Brisbane, partly cloudy, 25, Townsville, partly cloudy, 29. Keynes, a shower, 2.30. Alice Springs, partly cloudy, 36. Darwin, a shower, or 2, and a possible storm, 34. And the Torres Strait Islands, a sunny day, and a top of 31 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 pm or anytime online. I'm Petron Tungandame broadcasting from Nam this Monday afternoon. Still to come, a conversation with uh, Tristan Pemberton, director of the movie Gravel Road, a movie that tells the story of indigenous uh, rock and roll band The Desert Stars, also known as uh, Black Adaka described as the world's most remote indigenous rock and roll band. Also in ITV Radio today, recently a major housing development was stopped on the outskirts of Adelaide after the discovery of what's believed to be one of the largest ancient burial grounds in South Australia. But first, let's hear how protecting Australia's ocean is more important now than ever. A range of free events have been planned for Melbourne, Sydney and Byron Bay between the 8th and the 12th of November, aimed at activating communities to take uh, steps to better protect the nation's uh, amazing marine ecosystems. And joining me on NITV Radio to explore this series of events is uh, Yaran Cousins uh, Bando, person who has been instrumental in uh, organising uh, these events. Now, Yaran, before we go into discussing the series of events, uh, can you tell us uh, a word or two about yourself and your role and involvement in uh, ocean protection? Uh, Nyata, my name is Yaran Cousins Bundle, um, a Gunditjmara, Yuan and Bidra woman, and a proud whale dreaming custodian on my Gunditjmara bloodline. Now, as mentioned in the introduction, in the coming days, uh, a series of events will take place uh, to raise awareness about the need to better protect the environment, the marine environment, and uh, you've been instrumental in uh, making uh, these events happen. Tell us about uh, the planned activities. I'm really excited to be part of the Patagonia event in Nam, Melbourne. 
it's all about you know, protecting the oceans and our precious marine ecosystems that um, you know, are the foundations of the ocean and our planet. It's an honour to be able to stand um, yes, for our Matakitong, which uh, our sea country king or family, um, that's the Konichmao word for ocean family. And yeah, we're trying to help strengthen the voices of the ocean and try and preserve some of the ocean languages, you know, which are the sounds um, that come from country, sea country in particular. Yeah, and uh, during this series of events, uh, there are projected uh, talks that we'll be holding with uh, uh, world-renowned spokespeople like uh, Patagonia global sports activist uh, Dave Rostovich and uh, Uncle Bana Lori. Now, tell us about uh, these uh, talks you'll be holding with uh, these uh, world-renowned uh, spokespeople. It's a great honour to be able to be speaking with Uncle Bana and Dave. Um, got a lot of respect for the work that they've both been doing and we'll be yarning about the risks of um, destruction um, that are pretty imminent on our sea country at the moment. Um, but also yeah, trying to tackle you know, the seismic blasting at the scale um, that it's being proposed is one of the is the largest seismic blasting project in the world. The Southern Ocean, yeah, and so it's really important that we try and inform people about what the risks are to sea country. Yeah, yeah, and it said that uh, actually I was looking at the figures that only three percent of uh, marine life is actually protected, which is a very small percentage of uh, what needs to be protected. Yeah, um, in this day and age, I think it's disappointing for. Yeah, the amount of ocean um, that is actually protected considering that it covers over 70% of our planet. Yeah. There's not a lot of understanding about First Nations people's connections to sea country and why it's so um, vital that the oceans are protected. So during the four days of events, there'll be talks and on top of that, there'll be projections of films and uh, even live music. So it feels like uh, there'll be more of a festive atmosphere. Yeah, I think we really have to stay positive and celebrate, um, you know, the good work that is being done and, yeah, use all different mediums to help educate other people about the significance of ocean protection and why yeah we're making a stand against these gas giants and sadly our state and federal governments um yeah they're just not listening and they need to be part of this education um to understand why it's so important to protect the ocean yeah you're one of the leaders of the southern ocean protection embassy collective can you tell us about the activities uh maybe tell us yeah more a little bit about the activities of um sopec sopec was founded a few years ago in you know protection of the gunditjmara sea country um, which is spans along the southern coast of um, australia and the victorian coastal waters from anglesey which is right along the Great Ocean Road there, all the way to near the South Australian border. 
were founded on the fact that um, the southern right whales nursing and calving and birthing sites are at direct risk of being destroyed from gas and unfortunately giant wind turbines in the ocean. It was also founded to support the education around the ocean and solutions for caring for country, um, so that education and research side of things um, that is, you know, very important about, you know, going going into a greener future. Yeah, yeah. We... We've just recently had a rally in Warrnambool against seismic blasting. That was a really great turnout. And a lot of the locals along the coast um, were all banding together, surfers, First Nations mob, fishermen, um, ocean lovers, you know, swimmers, um, young people, old people, to protect this iconic and amazing cold water um, coastline and ecosystems. That's mainly why, yes, yeah, SOPEC was founded and some of the work that we're doing involves that oceanic education but also beach cleanups and going to preserve the cultural heritage sites along Gunditjmara Sea Country. That's a really, really great work you're doing there. Now, before I let you go, uh just closing closing thoughts or maybe a message to the community or something we may have missed in the conversation you want to bring to the attention of our listeners? I'd like to, you know, pay my respects to all the First Nations people around Australia that are currently fighting against the industrialisation and the direct disrespect that the federal government is showing them in our connections and our right to carry on with our culture and honour and practice our cultural ways. I'd also like to the listeners out there to understand that the scale of um, the destruction that's proposed is nothing short of animal terrorism. You know, if we put that into a human context, we're, we're going in support of, um, you know, ceasefire and all the things that are happening in the world in terms of war and human life that's being disposed of, but um, not enough people are really talking about, you know, the mass extinction that um, these projects um, all around Australia will be causing and irreversible damage. And so we're hoping that people understand the mass extinction that's happening all around the world now, but... um, it's now becoming a co-extinction story. If they go, we go. If the oceans die, we die. You know, so there's parts of the Great Barrier Reef that you know are, are dying off at a huge rate. And down south here, we have the Great Southern Reef, and that spans along the whole southern coast of Australia and connected to Tassie and. We just want that right to life and right to exist without having to be in that survival mode all the time. Yaran Cousins Bando, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio about uh, these uh, upcoming events to protect the nation's amazing marine ecosystems. Thank you very much for having me. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. 
It's time for a break, but uh, when we come back, we have the story of the Desert Stars, the world's most remote indigenous rock band in a new movie, Gravel Road. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. The Desert Stars, the world's most remote indigenous rock band from Spinifex country in Western Australia, is embarking on a national tour kicking off with a performance at Cinema Nova in Carlton uh, this coming Saturday, November 11. In the sidelines of the performance, there will be a screening of uh, Gravel Road, a film by uh, Tristan Pemberton. The film follows the debut tour of the Desert Stars as they traveled from their home in remote Trunindura across the punishing terrain of the Western Australian desert. And Tristan has just joined us on ITV radio to explore the upcoming tour and also the movie Gravel Road. Welcome to ITV Radio, Tristan. Thanks, Bertrand. Great to be here. Now, this is a groundbreaking event, having this band come to perform in Melbourne, and uh, especially uh, also the screening of uh, Gravel Road. Uh, I was just reading in the news that uh, the previous time um, when this happened, uh, it was such a raving success. There were encores and more encores, and the band ran out of songs to sing, uh, actually, at the performance. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. No, that was a, It was a great event. You must be talking about the Cinefest Oz event, the Australian premiere at Margaret River. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was great. And it was what was also really special about that event. It was in WA, which is where the film comes from, and it's also where the band are traditional landowners, a Spinifex country. So there was quite a few community members that made it over to that screening, which was fantastic. I think we had about 20 people from community there supporting the film. It was a fitting... Uh, a launch for the, the film in Australia. And you're replicating the event in uh, Melbourne on Nam on uh, the Cooling Nation. The band also is also known as uh, Black Daka, which is, I believe, just a kind of a play with words of Akadaka because it's a, a rock band known for their really, really high uh, energy performances. Uh, tell us about uh, working with this band and the making of the movie Gravel Road been an incredible experience. I first heard about the community of Jinanjara through my sister, who was working as a community development officer in the 1990s. Fiona had met some of the older people who'd had, remember having first contact, so were born in country and, and grew up in country and then had first contact when the atomic British atomic test started at Maralinga and Spinifex country. So I heard of these remarkable stories of, of survival, but also a story about the last family, the last hunter-gatherer family, which came out of the desert in 1986, which just seemed like I couldn't comprehend how, how it was so recent in times there was still a family living out there. So I embarked on a, on a journey to... Um, request permission from the community whether I could meet with people and talk about that story and with the potential of maybe making a film about that one day. So the community invited me out. I met some of the surviving family members and I met the tracker who, who followed the footprints when they found them and met the family and and that started a journey with me um, and the community making films together. And so when I heard the band was 
was going to go on their first tour to support their album. I thought, wow, what a historic event. It's the first time they've been on a tour. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to follow the band and, and sort of you know, share their story. And so, and I'd met Jay Minning, the singer-songwriter of the band, previously. We had worked on uh, a, a music promo for their song, Jinanjara, a Homeland's Tribute. And so Jay and the band and the community invited me out to make a music promo, so which we shot around Menzies Shire and, and it was shot in Menzies Shire. We shot it up at Lake Ballard as well. So Jay and I had worked together. He's, he's an incredible creative. I mean, not only is he a great singer-songwriter and, and a songman of, of community, he's also very creative when it comes to filmmaking. So he had all these great ideas and, um, and which, which led to the music promo Jinanjara. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was a great opportunity when, when I knew the band was going to tour to get on that bus and get along and capture it. And, um, yeah, so that, that's the long and short of it. And how is it working with uh, Jay? Because uh, he's a really uh, very creative singer-songwriter, but he's also someone who connects uh, his culture to uh, Western culture, I believe, uh, the culture of uh, the last true nomads to the Western culture. How is it uh, working with a person who bridges both worlds? It's remarkable. This country is full of tra- traditional landowners from, you know, many many different countries. Um, but Spinifex people were pretty lucky in that because of remoteness, they managed to stay as traditional as possible um, up into recent times. So Jay is his parents were born in country. Jay is sort of of the first generation of people that were not born in country, but he's connection to country is just is incredible it's it's real it, it informs him as a person and and what he does and how he behaves um so it's it's really special to be able to walk on country with traditional landowners and jay was is very like most benefits people are very warm and inviting they're very gentle people um so to walk on country with him and hear him tell stories and sing his songs it's 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 a it's it's quite a privilege the movie Gravel Road indicates uh, the roads you're traveling on. How is it uh, traveling on those roads uh, with your crew and uh, the band? Well, when you say crew, there was no crew. It was me. <laughs> we did have a photojournalist traveling along as well. So Dean Sewell was there to capture photos and of of the tour. But look, it, yeah, it was. It was a great experience. It was incredibly difficult at times. It was it was punishing on vehicles, um, punishing on people sitting there in a car hour after hour on on corrugated roads. All those vibrations really bad for equipment. So we had equipment failures. We had vehicle failures. We certainly had difficulties along the way. But look, what what drove us all that way was just that passion that Jay and the band had for their music. And you know, even when things were when challenges were happening, when things were going wrong, Jay was still there with a smile on his face, still there with that passion and that dream just to keep going. And so it was sort of what fueled all of us really to keep the journey going. And um, so, look, it's, it's difficult at the end of it. It was kind of a relief that was over, but it didn't take long before I started sort of missing the adventure um, of being out there, getting that 
red dust on your skin. Uh, I think once you get that red dust on your skin, you can never get it off. It, it sort of leaves an indelible print on you. And so it's, yeah, look, it's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was an incredible experience, really. I mean, because I'd do it all again. Um, we'd probably do a few, few things differently this time, but um, I'd definitely do it all again. It was an amazing experience. I saw the trailer. Your colleagues say that it was really punishing. Everything that could possibly go wrong did go wrong, but you went through it and uh, eventually made it to the, until the end, and yet you feel you can do it again. I'd hope um, I don't want to give too much away over the film, but look, I hope if we did it again or if we did something di- again, we we did something similar again. We would see more of the community and see more of the country, see some different places because Australia is a vast, vast place. And you know, one one little drive, it might that might be a few thousand kilometres, but it's still a little drive when you consider the size of the country. So. I'd hope that maybe we get an opportunity again and to go to some different places and see some different parts of the world and, and drive through different countries. Can you tell us a word or two about the communities uh, that uh, you interacted with uh, during this uh, road trip, I'd call it. I don't know if it's a road trip or I don't know how to call it. Well, it is. A, it was a road trip, essentially. Um, you know, we had a bus, we had all the musical equipment, the sound and lighting equipment, plus uh, camera equipment. We all got in there and we went on, hit the road. Um, Yeah, the community stuff was the highlight for me, for sure. Um, Kicking off in Jinanjara, it's a a very special place. It's a community that was created by the Spinifex people when they were relocated after Maralinga. People were taken away from country and taken into other people's country they were forced to settle there because their country was being irradiated and poisoned by, by the atomic testing. Yeah. So uh, government had invested a lot of money in these communities, but, but, but Spinifex people um, didn't really want to live in those countries because it wasn't their place, it wasn't their country, it wasn't their traditional homeland. Yeah. So the story of Jinanjara is one of determination of people to return to country. I mean, that in itself is a pretty remarkable story, which we aim to tell some of that. I mean, a little bit of that story is told in Gravel Road. Uh, we aim to tell a bit more of that story in the film The Last Nomads when we eventually make that. But, yeah, going into community is great because you, you see people on country. There's a sense of belonging that people have in country, and this is anywhere in the world where people, um, their ancestors have lived and died for you know generation after generation. There's a sense of belonging that people have when they're in country. So Jinanjara was no exception. Um, also, when we went to Warburton, we you know, had a very warm welcome there. The community just loved having Jinanjara there and uh, having uh, Desert Stars there, playing music, singing songs that they could relate to about you know life on country and about displacement and, and about the experience of, of modern traditional landowners living in this world that is evolving and changing. So it was, yeah, it was a special experience. And uh, that was uh, Tristan uh, Pemberton, director of uh, the movie Gravel Road. And it's only part of our conversation. The full conversation will be published on our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Just a reminder, the movie Gravel Road will uh, premiere nationally this coming uh, weekend with a special screening at Cinema Nova in Melbourne this Saturday, 11th of November, a screening with which uh, will be 
which will follow the performance actually of uh, the Desert Stars uh, themselves. So if you want to see this legendary band, well, don't miss out. It'll be at Cinema Nova if you happen to be living in Nam and Melbourne. This is uh, one event not to be missed. Time for a break. And when we come back, next one is story out of uh, South Australia with... Uh, the discovery of what seems to be the oldest burial ground. But first, Maisha in interlude. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Yes, the media makes it that way too. Media's always done that for years. But I think, you know, most people in Warabenda, we just, no, no, I hardly ever hear anybody talk about a lot of what white fellas in a hatred, hatred sort of a way. There's very few people that do it. And it's not even hatred. I think it's more frustration and anger, you know. And I think we've become so tolerant of what the newspapers have done and the media has done. I think we as Aboriginal people, we have learned to turn the other cheek. We just, if we get too wrapped up into, into responding to the newspapers and the news that's all we'll, that's all we'll ever be doing. It's just responding to discrimination all the time. It doesn't take away the goodness of people's hearts. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. A major housing development has been stopped on the outskirts of Adelaide after the discovery of what's believed to be one of the largest ancient burial grounds in South Australia. The developer wants to excavate and remove the ancestral remains and cultural object objects but doesn't but that doesn't sit easily with many in the Ghana community. In Adelaide's north, a grand new suburb called Riverlee is promising a whole new way of living. Riverlee will eventually be twelve thousand homes over fifteen years. This site is also the resting place for one of the largest Aboriginal burial grounds in the state, containing the skeletal remains of at least 31 ancestors in two areas. The further we go west, the more worrying we've got. We've got a Thompson Creek there, we've got herfs, that many ovens over there, it's not funny, so... We are going to find more burials, it's just a matter of when. The creek was a significant Ghana campground and an important meeting place for visitors from other Aboriginal nations. But blocks on this burial ground have already been sold and developer Walker Corporation is asking the state's permission to excavate. It's illegal to impact Aboriginal heritage without the government's permission. Aboriginal heritage workers say the individual remains uncovered so far have been damaged by farming and require reburial, but they don't want to see any more remains dug up. What I'm hearing from members of Ghana um, is that um, we don't want our ancestors dug up anymore. Um, that's been very loud and clear, um, and I think that's the sort of thing that we need to start planning for with future developments. The remains are being temporarily stored in this shipping container. Some Indigenous community members believe the disturbed spirits will create negative consequences for Ghana, as well as those living in the disturbed burial ground. We want them to, to have a happy life with their family living on in their new homes, but if it's going to be there, it's, going to be, it's not going to be a good place for them to live, and a safe place as well. One local traditional owner says he's angry that he only learned about the scale of the discoveries from leaked photographs. He and others in the Ghana community are calling on the state government to reject the developer's application. 
He also wants the developer to adjust the layout to include a memorial garden over the burial ground. It'd be a whole lot of relief, um, and it would mean a lot. A lot of uh, a lot of emotion would you know would would come to an ease, um, knowing that they're going to stop continuing to pull out the rest of their ancestors um, and put them back where they came from. How would they like it if we dug their parents up? You know, gone up into one of their cemeteries and dug that one. How would they like that? A small hole in the skull of one of the ancestors has sparked concern it could be a massacre site. But archaeological evidence in an unpublished report indicates the remains are part of a pre-colonisation traditional burial ground, potentially up to 6,000 years old. The state government says it's committed to protecting Aboriginal heritage. Walker Corporation says it's working with the Ghana Yurta Aboriginal Corporation to ensure the ancestral remains are treated with respect and an appropriate outcome is implemented. Peter Doherty, NITV News. And uh, that was uh, Dreamtime Stories by uh, Kalad Stone. And uh, that's all for from NITV Radio this uh, Monday afternoon. Your program will be back uh, on Friday. It will be brought to you by uh, Lawana Grant. I am Bertrand Tungandame, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. Yeah,